The Energy Gang is brought to you by Bloom Energy. Bloom Energy is transforming the way businesses and communities take charge of their energy supply through resilient, predictable, and zero-carbon solutions. Bloom's on-site energy platform provides unparalleled control for those looking to secure clean, reliable, 24-7 power that scales to meet critical business needs. Visit bloomenergy.com slash theenergygang to take charge today. The Energy Gang is brought to you by Hitachi ABB Power Grids. What does your energy future look like? Look to Hitachi ABB Power Grids for the advanced energy technologies needed to deliver real outcomes, unlocking new revenue streams, maximizing renewable integration, and lowering carbon emissions. Visit hitachiabb-powergrids.com slash gridedge for more information, or just follow that link right there in the show notes. This is The Energy Gang, weekly discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome to the show. Ride-sharing has swept transportation systems over the last decade, bringing lots of convenience, but also congestion, inequities, and political fights. Now a new category of transportation networking is emerging, transit tech. It makes up a class of companies that are using tech to maximize public transit systems. So what does transit tech look like post-pandemic? Catherine Hamilton is my co-host. She's in Arlington, Virginia. How are you? How many forms of transportation did you take today? I haven't gone anywhere. I've gone like up and down my stairs to get coffee and that's it. (laughs) The only uh, transit I took today was my moving my vehicle from getting towed because it is (laughs) uh, on the street of Boston and it is street sweeper day. Tiffany, what about you? What modes of transportation did you take today? Well, um, today I walked to breakfast um, using my two feet. However, yesterday I did take uh, light rail in Seattle to the airport to get on a flight to come to a conference uh, in Monterey, California. What are you doing there in Monterey? Uh, UC Davis, uh, their Institute of Transportation Studies actually has this really wonderful biennial conference about California transportation and climate policy. Cool. Well, if you're wondering who Tiffany is, it is Tiffany Chu. She's our guest this week. She is a designer. She's a planner. She was the first user experience hire at Zipcar. She was a commissioner at the San Francisco Department of the Environment. And she was CEO and co-founder of Remix, um, this platform that helps hundreds of cities use better data to plan transportation systems. And Remix was acquired by VIA earlier this year for $100 million. So she's now the SVP of Remix at VIA. And Tiffany, we're super excited to have you here. Good, good, to, good to hear from you. Thanks so much for having me. It's a, it's a joy to be here. So I'm really interested to hear your take on transit tech. It's actually a category we haven't talked much about on this show. We talk about the different forms of climate tech and deep tech, but transit tech hasn't come up as much. So I, I think I want to explore this space more. Um, tell me about this sector, this bigger sector we're calling transit tech. What does it encompass and how big is it? So transit tech stands for transit technology like ed tech for education or fintech for finance. Transit tech encompasses all forms of tech-enabled solutions to address today's public transportation challenges and better serve communities around the globe. So for example, whether it's improving the environment and reducing greenhouse gas emissions or helping transit agencies in cities efficiently spend limited budgets to serve the most people or 
you know, increasing affordable, accessible options for those left behind by traditional forms of transportation, such as private car ownership. Transit tech is really about improving lives and helping people move efficiently uh, in partnership with the public sector, as opposed to trying to disrupt it. In terms of the market size um, and the category, transit tech is large and definitely growing. Um, According to a May 2021 report by BCG, transit tech started at around 20 billion in 2019 and has grown to around 60 billion in 2025. And it's been really driven by a number of macro trends, including things like customer and rider expectations for flexibility and convenience, and also a growing need by cities to be more cost-effective and to do more with less to modernize their networks, managing reduced budgets during COVID, and a pretty broad recognition of the critical role that transit plays in economic development, equity, and uh, sustainability. So I want to talk more about where Via sits in that. Again, your company that you co-founded called Remix was acquired by Via earlier this year. Um, What are you collectively doing under the Via umbrella, and, and where does it fit into this transit tech world? Yes. So let me start with VIA and then I'll talk about Remix um, for folks who might not be familiar. VIA is a transit tech company that's partnering with cities and transit agencies to provide digital infrastructure technology to power public mobility systems from more flexible, dynamic transit shuttles to paratransit services to school buses and much more. And The way that Remix fits in is that Remix is the leading collaborative platform for transportation planning, as you mentioned earlier, Stephen. And we help today over 500 cities around the world plan their public transit networks, design safer infrastructure, such as bike lanes and transit priority. And the way that they work together is that we're trying to support multimodal cities to become a reality. And that's been our strategic goal independently before we were acquired, and now uh, we're trying to achieve that together. There's this word that I'm hearing you say, collaboration, which seems really vital to the world of, of transit tech. Catherine, uh, are you picking up on this as well? How do you understand the scope of this space? Yeah, it's super interesting, because back in 2014, one of my kids was an intern at the Intelligent Transportation Society of America. And they were just working on, you know, what are the technologies that move cars through cities? And it's just grown so much since then. It's incredible how much innovation um, has really expanded this because it's an incredibly complicated system that involves not just cars, but as you know, as Tiffany says, lots and lots of other pieces that move people and stuff from point A to point B, and how you get there and what you need to do that. And, you know, even goes into optimization and supply chains and management of fleets, and what are those fleets composed of. So I find it fascinating, you know, one of the apps that I use when I do travel, is called City Mapper. And City Mapper basically says, all right, how do you get from point A to point B? And what kind of modes would you need to use to get there? It includes everything from scooters and mopeds and ferries and buses. And you know, there, there's just so much that's involved in the system that I think um, there is a lot of room for growth and improvement. And I'm really glad to see um, companies like Via doing this. Yeah. So if we want people to engage more with trains and buses and shuttles and 
shared transportation along with scooters and bike shares and um, the occasional personal transport, um, you know, what? why is collaboration so important, Tiffany, to get that right? So I think that there's a real power in technology being able to reduce barriers to entry and also to lower barriers between traditional silos. For example, in lots of city departments and transit agency and local government departments, there's lots of different teams that are responsible for different things that often don't talk to each other. And I think what we found through Remix and also through Via that if everyone is on the same software platform speaking the same language, whether it's language around planning and communities and who you're serving, or if, even if it's languages around operations and who's doing what and when is the next vehicle coming and how many people will that vehicle hold and booking and reservations, the amount of opportunity that there is for technology to make that process much more seamless and much less manual is inherently a move forward for collaboration across agencies who are trying to work together to deliver the same level of high quality service to their communities in regards to transportation. Let's turn now to how this space will fit into a post-pandemic world, a world with declining ridership and systems in dire need of upgrades, but also a world with much better tech solutions, uh, a much clearer focus on solving transportation inequities, and potentially this infusion of government cash, which we can talk about as part of the infrastructure bill. So. Look, transit systems, um, you know, the ridership in some cities was up, but we've seen declining ridership in all sorts of other regions around the country. I think bus ridership was down before the pandemic and then the pandemic hit. And, you know, we saw 50% reduction in, um, in, in cars. We saw a 50% reduction in cars on the road, but we also saw this massive hit to transit systems. And then when people started driving their cars again, the, the the ridership on transit systems was slower to come back. So what has happened in, you know, the more than 18 months since COVID froze everything and then threw everything into disarray? So a lot has happened. And as we have seen and, you know, many of us have experienced, COVID presented both a extremely difficult challenge and also, you know, a little bit of an opportunity for cities to reflect on their systems as travel demand and travel patterns changed extremely abruptly. So I've got some data from the International Association of Public Transport, UITP, and in broad strokes, transportation, public transit ridership across the globe is still way down. And we have been increasing ridership slowly with some transport networks posting record high ridership numbers since the start of COVID. And that might be due to some combination of improved vaccination rates, phasing out of restrictions and restart of schools in person now that it's fall. Um, however, it is important to note that some cities, especially in the U.S., the normal ridership bump for transit that usually comes um, at the end of summer and the beginning of school would have been even higher. So it's very clear that public transit is not recovering yet. Um, in terms of some statistics, in D.C., bus ridership for D.C.'s metro system is at 74% compared to the same week in 2019. Um, subway ridership in D.C. is only at 25 percent 
25%. That is so low. Wow. Low. I had no idea the numbers were still that low. Yeah. Uh, For example, in San Francisco, Muni ridership, which is combined bus and light rail, is at 48% compared to pre-pandemic levels. And then BART ridership, which is our heavy rail regional commuter system, is even lower at 38%. Catherine, don't walk up the stairs to go get your cup of coffee. Go ride the Silver Line into (laughs) D.C. downtown and get your cup of coffee and ride it back. Yeah, so I was I was a bus rider, not a not a train rider, um, just from where I live. But so in DC, you can understand that because the federal government really hasn't opened up. A lot of those people are still working virtually, and um, and that's a huge piece of what DC is. Um, Congress, a lot of those folks are working virtually, and it's it's because of the type of work. So. You know, there are some people who are driving in, far fewer people. Um, There's always a core group of folks who have to take public transit and will and never stop taking public transit. But as you can see, it's not nearly the levels that you would have had pre-pandemic. The other thing that's a little counterintuitive is that you would think that there would be fewer cars on the road or fewer trips taken. But in fact, what people used to do is what's called tours or trip chaining, where you would drop your kid off at school, then you drive to work if you drove, then you would come home and maybe you would drop by the grocery store on the way home and then come back. And now if you're working at home, you're taking separate trips, you're actually taking more trips in your car to go to the grocery or to pick up your kid. And so what's what has happened is it simply shifted. And certainly we have much more freight traffic. So you think about the Amazon and Uber Eats delivers, everybody has all those groceries, and some of that can persist. And then the the other piece of this is that um, people can move further out um, into suburbs without feeling the pinch as much. So people on the average, are able to sustain a commute of about 30 minutes each way by car. That's what most people are kind of willing to live with. If there's less traffic, if there's less congestion, then they may choose to live further out because it won't take as long to get back in. And so it really changes so much of the dynamics. And one other piece of data I wanted to share is that fatal crashes with pedestrians has gone up significantly. And part of this is because there's been less traffic, cars are driving faster. There also, it has an impact on lower income communities because often those communities, the roads in those communities are first of all not designed for pedestrians. So they're not designed with as much investment in sidewalk or bike infrastructure, but also they're designed to move people through the communities rather than having them stop. And so the pedestrian and biker impacts have been much higher in in fatalities. So it's, it's a super complicated system. There are a lot of pieces at work here. And I think that technology can help us with that, but we also have to kind of open our eyes to what's really happening. Um, Catherine, I guess the way that I was respond to that is, um, I mean, we can very physically experience the changing travel patterns the moment you know everyone kind of steps out of their house there's actually way more traffic um, and we've seen this uh, actually in in the numbers as well traffic is actually returned with with a vengeance and car ownership and people buying cars has actually increased over time throughout COVID because many factors, one of them being people don't feel safe on public transit even though that's been scientifically 
debunked. Um, and people have just completely changed the way that they get around, whether it's coming from home to go to all the different places, like you mentioned. Um, I will say the ridership numbers in the U.S. are a little bit more depressing than elsewhere around the world. For example, um, in Europe, in London, buses are at about 70% ridership. The tube is at about 60%. More encouragingly, in Vienna, Paris, and in other places uh, like Barcelona, ridership numbers are back up to around 75, 85, 95%. And I think it really is dependent on lockdowns and various travel restrictions that the government has set and how different cultures have reacted to all of the various waves. Um, but Generally, as you can see, we are literally all over the map with regards to public transit ridership recovery, but it does give us some interesting insights into how different transportation modes, to your point, are recovering from COVID. So for example, bus ridership is recovering faster, likely due to folks who need to be present at their jobs, whether they are essential workers, retail, hospitality, et cetera, many who probably never stopped taking the bus. But then when you look at rail ridership, especially commuter rail, regional rail, ridership is still way down, likely because the way that the service was designed was for higher income folks, people who likely work from nine to five, typically commuted at peak hours pre-COVID and probably have been working from home for the past 18 months and have the privilege of being able to continue working from home. So I noticed you use the word depressing and not depressed. Uh, this is this is fairly de depressing, and I wonder how are transportation planners grappling with it. I mean, these numbers are pretty staggering, and you know, in in the post-COVID world, suddenly you had transportation planners. You know, in in larger cities where you had sophisticated, fairly large teams. Um, you know, planning out lots of different types of scenarios, not a few scenarios, but maybe 10 scenarios. So so where are we on the on the 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 dire scenario spectrum and um and how are how are folks who are making really important decisions about how these systems operate feeling right now? Yeah, great question. When we're looking at what's happening in our backend at uh, Remix and Via, what we're seeing is that planners and staff at cities and agencies are still working very hard to iterate on their systems. Um, and there's many more service changes and many more um, different scenarios, as you mentioned, when it comes to even inching back up to pre-COVID service levels. Uh, for example, in a number of cities where we work, where ridership is hovering around 60%, it's very hard for the agency to look at their budget and say, let's increase service, aka frequency, back up to you know every 10 minutes when ridership is still so far down. And so it becomes a little bit of a chicken and egg issue. Um, ideally, you want you know all the lights back on in your service before riders come, but you kind of need riders to come back as well in order to make the budget pencil out. So there's been just a lot of hand-wringing, kind of hair pulling out on the transit agency side of how to get back to where we were before, and that even being a struggle, um, not even you know discussing how we can really flourish kind of beyond a post-COVID world. So I would say it's still very hard. That said, um, I would say some silver linings include just how 
much more agile cities and agencies are becoming, um, how much more responsive. For example, we're seeing many, many more examples of kind of open streets, open for people, not not cars, uh, becoming permanent across cities in the U.S., in San Francisco, in Seattle, in New York. Um, and those are really, really you know, heartwarming to see that people are experiencing the value of public space in a much more human-centered way as opposed to automobile-centric. Yeah, Tiffany, Alexandria and Culpeper, Virginia, too. Alexandria kept part of their King Street closed to just pedestrian traffic so people could eat outside. And they're going to even keep it in the winter. They'll just bring heaters out, which is really nice to allow people to to get out, um, even if we're not fully recovered. And then Culpeper, Virginia is a really small town, and they have what they call parklets, which is they, they've taken some of the parking on the street in their main little historic downtown area and converted those places to, to areas where you could sit and visit or explore art or just have a meal. So it's been really nice. And I think people have gotten used to that and, and really like to have those as a benefit to living in a city. So I like to see those sustained. Yeah, and I don't want to downplay this at all because I think this is a huge trend. It's really important. I think it's what it's called. Is it called the slow streets movement? Is that right? Yes. Um, it, and this is this is fantastic, right? But it does tend to benefit wealthier communities, communities that tend to be whiter. And um, is this really like the big positive change from COVID? I mean, again, I don't want to undersell it because it is a very positive change. But is is this kind of one of the only positive things that we're seeing out of covid because there's also like you know there are there are folks who don't have the benefit to be able to enjoy those slow streets and um and and they're really suffering too that's true there's no way that you should position slow streets as a panacea to all of our transportation equity issues i do think it is one tool a very tactical tool that is very straightforward uh, in a way to implement. For example, um, in New Orleans, where we're doing a lot of work with the city there, they had a proposal actually proposed by the mayor during COVID to pedestrianize the French Quarter, which I don't know if you've been to New Orleans, but is a very congested high tourist area. Um, And what we found is that during COVID, the community was much more receptive to proposals to finally make this happen in a way that pre-COVID, it was difficult for people to think outside the box um, when it came to use of public space. And now we're seeing all these public comments roll in about what that change means for that community there, how it could be made more equitable. Maybe we connect uh, bike corridors to and from the French Quarter to you know, lower income communities to make sure that there is a pathway for people who have jobs in these areas to be able to get from one neighborhood to another and reap the same benefits um, as some of the more uh, privileged communities. Yeah, so those are important changes. Slower streets, a greater focus on equity outcomes because it's forcing us to ask hard questions, maybe questions that were already in front of planners from from the beginning, but the pandemic has exacerbated some of those inequities and more flexibility from planners and thinking through scenarios and real-time changes to service. Um, so so that that's important. Um, were there any surprises, any major surprises in terms of behavior or planning that you didn't expect? So we did an analysis of Via's riders um, 
on weekday hourly travel over the past year in eight major towns and cities. And we've got a few key findings from Austin, Jersey City, Fort Worth, Wilson, North Carolina. So a fairly wide spectrum of geographies. And the surprising thing, maybe not so surprising now, but we found that commuting is definitely back. Specifically, people are still traveling in the morning, in the evening to the same destinations as they were pre-COVID, and we're returning to a more traditional daily traffic pattern, uh, specifically, especially true in low-income communities. And in addition, there is more sustained high traffic in the afternoon. So as people continue working from home, people might be working from home in the mornings, but afternoon traffic is bounding back and is now heavier in many places than it was before COVID. Um, And I think what is also interesting is that when we look at some of the microtransit services that we're uh, serving communities with, essential workers have just continued to use it and depend on it throughout the entire pandemic. So that has been constant ridership um, in a way that maybe public transit uh, hasn't. That's so fascinating because I can definitely speak to that from personal experience. Um, You know, I don't go anywhere throughout the day. And then when I do have to go somewhere, if it does require a car, it'll probably be somewhere around two, three in the afternoon. And it's uh, everybody else is doing the same thing. And uh, it's been astonishing to see just how everybody is pouring onto the roads at the same time in in the mid-afternoon, and that does seem to be a pretty dramatic change. So having stats tied to that and to that experience is really fascinating. Catherine, um, I've asked you about predictions, you know, over the course of the last 18 months, and some of them have been transportation-related. What what changes do you think are going to be lasting here, and what changes do you think will be short-term? Oh, gosh, I think it totally depends on where you live and what kind of privilege you have in whatever job you have. So like for me, I can work remotely. That is not an issue at all. I can do meetings on Zoom. I can manage my travel in you know a much more conservative way. I think there are other folks who can't do that. Um, I think having a variety of mobility solutions is going to make a big difference. And and I love the fact that a lot of these transit tech um, solutions really look at the whole system. So it's, it's looking at how do you move people and stuff to where they need to go, not just how do you do public transit, but how do you integrate scooters? How do you integrate bike lanes? How do you make sure people can walk to where they need to go? And So I do think we'll be more mindful of it, especially as we become more mindful just of climate generally and move to more electric vehicles. I do think we're going to see many more modalities of transport as we have over the last few years. So every crisis obviously presents a number of opportunities, and it's where you see people exploring new business models, uh, people changing their behavior. What are the new opportunities you see, Tiffany, to see seize this shifting transportation paradigm? I think one really interesting trend that we're seeing is this integration of mobility options led by local governments themselves in a way that provides a much more seamless user experience to riders when making a choice about how they want to take their trip. One really interesting example that I've been following is in Pittsburgh, where Karina Ricks, who's now with the federal government, she led a mobility as a service approach and put together this all-star team of mobility companies where 
you can pay for any type of trip with uh, the same payment method um, from uh, the city and you can take public transit you can take bike share you can take scooter share etc um, all in one uh, way which I think is really fascinating and has been the holy grail for, for a while um, we're also seeing this in Summit County Utah where they've launched a new transit agency that's not just for fixed route transit but is partnering with VIA to basically do planning through to implementation for paratransit for non-emergency medical service and all of that kind of in one agency under one roof, under one technology, um, which makes it much easier for the user. And then in other examples, um, we've seen really interestingly that a lot of agencies are just really thinking about mobility for people without cars. And that in general um, requires, as Catherine mentioned, a very strong portfolio of alternatives. And unless you have that portfolio of, our portfolio of alternatives um, available to riders in a really easy to use way is never going to make people change their behavior. The Energy Gang is brought to you by Bloom Energy. Bloom is accelerating the hydrogen economy by partnering with industry leaders to produce clean, green hydrogen. Bloom's electrolyzer uses electricity and heat from a variety of renewable energy sources like concentrated solar power, solar panels, and nuclear power to generate green hydrogen at a scale needed to tackle today's climate crisis. Bloom's pioneering solid oxide fuel cell platform leverages technology originally developed for Mars and is uniquely designed to decarbonize our world's hardest to abate sectors. Bloom's platform has the flexibility to be deployed as a distributed generator of electricity or as an electrolyzer to produce green hydrogen. Learn more at bloomenergy.com slash the energy gang. The Energy Gang is brought to you by Hitachi ABB Power Grids. The grid, it's evolving and changing every day. But the fundamentals haven't. Safe, reliable power is needed everywhere. No matter where you are, battery energy storage paired with advanced controls and software can improve resiliency and efficiency. With grid edge solutions from Hitachi ABB Power Grids, you can integrate solar or wind to reach your sustainability goals while managing energy costs. It's all achievable with Hitachi ABB's innovative grid edge solutions. Learn more at hitachiabb-powergrids.com slash grid edge, or just follow the link in the show notes. Let's turn now to a question on a lot of people's minds. Is ride hailing worse than using a personal car? Now, there have been many studies showing that Uber and Lyft increase traffic, and that's a given at this point. But the common understanding historically has been that ride sharing was better for the environment than traveling alone in your car because it maximized use of automobiles already on the road. But a new study from Carnegie Mellon University disputes that notion, calculating that ride sharing increases external societal and environmental costs by up to 35%. Now, this study is super interesting because it feeds into our bigger conversation here about transit tech. And I think we can further make the distinction between personal ride hailing you know, often one person getting a ride in one car and systems optimization through transit tech. So this is probably a helpful way to differentiate those two things. Um, first to this study, Catherine, why are the costs higher than previously thought? What, what are these researchers digging into and arguing? 
Yes, yeah, super interesting. So they compared private vehicles to what they call TNCs, which are transportation network companies, and that those are the ride-hailing companies like Lyft and Uber. And they added up the miles traveled per trip with the externalities. Now, externalities are what's not included generally when you add up your miles per trip, and that includes emissions, congestion, crashes, noise, things like that. And certainly emissions are up 20%. Congestion and MIT has confirm this is much worse, as you mentioned. I talked about crashes a little bit just during COVID, crashes going up, and then noise certainly up as well. And what happens with ride-hailing companies are a couple things. One is that um, there's something called deadheading. So what that is just either driving around, you're idling, you're waiting for the next ride to be called to you. And so that creates a lot of emissions, and it also creates a little more, more miles traveled Per trip. So even though ride hailing companies have less air pollution, so most air pollution itself is caused from cold starts when you start your engine. Um, and so you know, when you start your own car, and these cars are not, they've been started, they've been driving around. So the, the actual point source air pollution might be less. Sometimes the cars are newer, a little bit cleaner. They're, they have to be well-maintained to be able to use them every single day for as much as they're using them. So while air pollution is less, maybe 9 to 13 cents a trip, still the external costs are between 32 and 37 cents more in external costs. Now, if we were to electrify the ride-hailing companies, it could be better, but we're also electrifying private vehicles. So that may be that may come out in the wash, but it is certainly quite obvious that ride hailing is much more polluting. And I would say that um, Union of Concerned Scientists, and I spoke with Elizabeth Irvin, who is a transportation specialist there, they found similar results in their studies as well. Tiffany, what do you make of this? What was your reaction to the study? So I've seen a f- handful of studies about this and a huge amount of respect to the researchers who are trying to get to the bottom of this. I guess in my opinion, if we look at the decarbonization potential of TNCs, looking at each individual trip, ride hail trip as a one for one replacement of a different mode might be the wrong framing. And the reason why I say this is maybe, you know, apples to apples, uh, Uber or Lyft ride might be more emissions intensive than walking or public transit or et cetera. But if you think about the holistic picture of how ride hailing fits into someone's life, if I'm a family, if I have a family and I can actually choose not to own a second car because I can have one car and then take Uber and Lyft the rest of the time and I actually get rid of my second vehicle, that's actually a net positive in terms of uh, emissions reductions. And I, in my opinion, I think the study is important. However, I think it would benefit the industry if we thought about all of the collection, all of the collective options as a whole, um, as opposed to each individual ride uh, in isolation. Definitely complicated, but we do find that when transportation networking companies do come into cities, that rail ridership decreases by up to a couple of percent, and so we definitely see declines in 
public transportation usage when transportation networking companies um, offer their services in, in cities. So how do you make sense of that? Yes, and that's exactly why it is so important for transit tech to be working in very close collaboration and cooperation with the public transit agency in the region. And that is why shared forms of transit, in, for example, pooling, um, are really important into making this type of connection much more sustainable as a whole. For example, um, we've been working with King County Metro for a number of years in the Seattle region, and we have a really interesting program there where VIA provides VIA to light rail. So the new Sound Transit light rail line um, and the new stations, um, a lot of places it's difficult for people to get to light rail and i think an area of opportunity for ride hailing or ride pooling is to make sure that people can get to public transit so that we're not cannibalizing um, really strong corridors and really strong uh, ridership areas for public transit to play the most important role so California just established a policy called the Clean Mile Standard um, that addresses some of these issues. They want to transition ride-hailing services to 90% EVs by 2030. But there are other things that we have to think about, right, as, as we've talked about. One is prevent deadheading, so not just miles driving around without passengers. Make sure that you're sharing, um, that you're not doing solo trips. Certainly during COVID, it, that was tricky. Um, making sure that you connect with transit stations. So that's a little nuanced because often transit stations are located where there are other things like restaurants and you know other other services. And so you want to make sure that it actually is going to the services that you need. And then also subsidizing construction of bike lanes to make sure that you have other modes of transportation. And, you know, if you want to help the drivers as well, what they have found is that it's about four cents a mile for to subsidize Uber and Lyft drivers to um, replace cars to be electric vehicles. So um, Uber and Lyft could probably do that. Um, but right now they're trying to figure out um, how to do this. They're doing a rulemaking to try to figure out how do you support the drivers and make sure they can actually do this. It feels to me like there's a bigger question here, which is what do we do about single occupancy vehicles overall? Tiffany, um, what's the bigger context to this study that you're thinking about? In my opinion, I think we have to be much more aggressive about looking at the core problem. There's many studies on both sides of TNCs, but I think sometimes the transportation industry can become myopic um, around this issue when the much bigger problem is the single occupancy vehicle, the privately owned single occupancy vehicle. And so in order to address that problem, we have to do two things. Number one, dramatically improve and expand public transit, provide people with more and real options. For example, the clean mile standard that you just mentioned, Catherine. And then number two, I think we should aggressively start charging people for driving around in single occupancy vehicles. And that can take the form of congestion pricing, that can take the form of road use charging, that can take the form of more aggressive tolling when people are bringing in their vehicle and they're the only one riding in it or it's only a driver um, taking a rider. I think that's the only way we're going to get out of this. And Catherine, looking at the results of this piece of research we're discussing, the researchers had 
one fix for this externality problem, which is put more people in those Ubers and Lyfts per ride. Share share those Ubers and Lyfts more. Right. Or put lots of people in larger vehicles to going on certain routes, otherwise known as buses. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We're back here again, full circle. <laughs> Let's wrap up with our final climate bill watch. Catherine, this infrastructure bill and the bigger spending bill with, with lots of climate programs are both hanging in the balance. There's um there's a lot of stuff in both bills for modernizing transportation, so I want to get to that. But first, why are these bills stalled? And remind us what's broadly in each of them. Boy, I feel like I've asked you the, this variation of this question so many times in the in the last few months, but honestly, I think everyone's at the edge of their seat. So so help us out. Yeah, so I when Donald Baird is forever sending me emails that are all in caps, like what's happening, what's going to happen, and I just say, man, it's a marathon. First of all, I tell all my clients, don't read the news, because what the media does is create drama and conflict when there may or may not be, and that's their job. I get that. Um, but this is a long road, and it and it's going to end quickly. It's going to end soon, precipitously, because there's some sort of forcing mechanisms there. There are two main bills that we've talked about. One is the infrastructure bill. That is done, and it's just waiting for a vote in the House of Representatives that was passed in the Senate. And that's this whole bipartisan package. It includes all of the highway funding. So the highway, highway funding ran out. They had to extend it. Um, for a short period of time. But that bill is huge and it contains all of what was like voted on unanimously in the Senate committee on all the highway trust fund and all those programs, a lot of which have to do with climate. So all of that piece is in the infrastructure bill. That also has some really interesting provisions on grid modernization. These are things that people could agree on across the aisle. It's very strong bill, but certainly it's not completely focused on climate nor is it focused on all the safety net issues, the, the social safety net issues that the Democrats have wanted to, to address as well. So that is going to be ready. It's sitting in the sidelines. It did not come up for a vote because the speaker knew it would not win because the progressives in the Democratic caucus in the House said we're not going to vote for it. She has a very thin margin. Her progressives, remember, are in the hundreds, not in the tens, which the moderates are, I think they're nine moderates and they're over 100 progressives. So it's a—it's not the same level, but the moderates were, are very much for this bipartisan infrastructure bill, which is a great bill. But then there's this other bill that would be done through reconciliation, which would only get Democratic votes um, and which everybody kind of has to agree on in the House and the Senate. And the Senate really needs to move first on that. And that's what the speaker is waiting for. And the key there is that Joe Manchin, who's the chair of the Senate Energy Committee, is really trying to negotiate. And I think they're negotiating in good faith with the moderate side of the caucus, the progressive side of the caucus, and the president and the leadership to try to figure out what's the number that will be okay. And that will be a bigger bill than the infrastructure bill and will include a host of social programs, but also will include the Clean Electricity Performance Program. It'll include that uh, climate 
National Climate Bank. It'll include a bunch on transportation. It'll include all those clean energy tax credits. So it will have a lot of really strong climate provisions in it. And the key is that the deadline to get all this done is by October 31st, because November 1st starts the COP proceedings in Glasgow. And the president has to be able to go with his head held high and show that the United States is back in and wants to lead it and really wants to show by example what we're doing and be able to step back in as the leader in those negotiations. So to really boil that down, it is Democrats against Democrats in this scenario. Yeah, but they're actually negotiating. I mean, if I, if you talk to any staff, they're all talking to each other. They're all trying to work together. They're trying to iron out any differences and any nuances so that when this happens, which right now they're dealing with a debt ceiling, then next week, uh, which is Indigenous Peoples Week, they'll be off for some of that time and they'll come back and finish everything off. And I, I do think they'll they'll be able to get it done. That's my that's my hope. Um, and I continue to stick by that um, by that belief that they will get it done. I think they're close and uh, they may have to reduce some of their numbers. I think the committee chairs are having to go back and kind of rethink the top line levels and greenhouse gas reductions is going to be a big metric when they think about what can they cut and what they what should they not cut. So I think a lot of those programs will survive in good strength because they need to uh, for the president to be able to show some leadership. Tiffany, um, transit agencies got some funding through the CARES Act, some short-term funding. They are pro- Many of them are probably in desperate need for more funding. The infrastructure bill includes $39 billion for public transit, plus you got all this extra funding for EV infrastructure, grants for high-speed rail systems. What dollar figures or programs supported or potentially supported are striking to you? Yes. So there's a lot to unpack in this bill on the transit and mobility front. Um, I would say three highlights of new programs that encourage innovation that we're pretty excited about and have been following are, number one, there is a first-of-its-kind federal program called the Carbon Reduction Program, about $1.28 billion per year, and that will be distributed to MPOs or metropolitan planning organizations and states for projects to reduce carbon emissions. So basically, instead of building new roads, states and MPOs can use this funding for anything that facilitates the use of alternatives to single occupant vehicle trips and helping to encourage shared or pooled vehicle trips, which is great. So following that one closely. Another one is there's a really interesting rural surface transportation program, and that will invest about $300 million next year, if I got that correct, growing to about $500 million um, by 2026 to improve infrastructure and transportation in rural areas, rural being defined somewhat liberally um, as areas with under 200,000 people. Um, and I think that's really interesting because um, this has been an area that has been underinvested for a long time. Um, but it actually helps to potentially push rural areas to think about more shared and pooled solutions. Um, and it's actually under the highway uh, umbrella. So, you know, a lot of transportation activists have been trying to push for obviously less highway funding and more transit funding. But that there's like a couple of interesting programs under highway Um, including some active transportation um, and bike-focused programs um, under that. 
So, and then the third one is the Urban Congestion Reduction Program, where large metropolitan areas, so over a million residents, can apply for a $50 million competitive grant to advance innovative, integrated, multimodal solutions for congestion relief. So, Tiffany, I have a question for you. Since the American Society of Civil Engineers gives our highway systems a D grade, um, and you give highway systems and agencies money, they're going to put it to improving the highways and roads, right? It's really hard to get them to think differently and to change the way we make decisions on our transportation systems. And I just wonder, I I know that the administration is trying to get um, highway commissions to think differently about how they plan, but that's got to be a hard thing to do, right? Yes, this will be very hard, especially because I was really recently at a conference where I think um, a leader from Texas DOT, the state agency, basically handed out a spreadsheet of 200 highway expansion projects um, that the state was undergoing with a ton of pride and made me really just understand the long road and the shift in philosophy Um, that it will take for states specifically because the way that state DOTs were created, they were originally supposed to be just for highways Um, and to expand their remit, expand their mission and adjust their focus. It is just going to be a long, a long road. I didn't realize that as I was reading some of the resources for this episode. I mean, it's like illegal for some of these agencies to plan beyond highways, right? Yes, um, and that's I, really... I, I was yeah. shocked by that. I didn't realize. So that is like, that, I mean, that feels like, uh, is that a surmountable problem? <laughs> the way that I would look at it is the more flexibility that cities can have in their local ju- jurisdictions around how to use funding to improve their rights of way, whether it's, you know, patching up roads and bridges or improving public transit, I think... The local municipalities, in my opinion, in my experience, will be better positioned to prioritize the most vulnerable users of the road, whether it's pedestrians, transit riders, uh, folks who are disabled, um, and et cetera. Yeah, and I think one thing we have to keep in mind as you just building off of that last point that you made is that there would be tens of billions dedicated to try to address racial inequalities in the way our system has been designed. And that, as I mentioned in the first segment, is is really important because our systems have been designed to get to get quickly through those communities rather than to actually have those communities be connected um, in a way that is safe and builds community. So what you're telling us, Catherine, is just like, shut our eyes, shut off the news for another 22 or 21 more days. And, you know, uh, maybe we'll wake up in three weeks with something passed. (laughs) That or have your paper bag ready to breathe into. (laughs) It's already here next to me. (laughs) Let's turn now to free electrons. Tiffany, you're up first. Ooh. So since moving to Seattle last year from San Francisco, I have been very interested in the ferry system here, Washington State Ferries. Um, And I've been just curious as to what is the largest ferry system in the world? And I wanted to ask you, Stephen and Catherine, what your guesses are. Okay. I don't actually know the answer to this, but I'm... Is it Japan? (laughs) Catherine? Is it New York? 
And I'm going to say Japan because I saw someone tweeting out about Japan's overnight ferry service. And they said, wouldn't it be cool to have something like this in the U.S.? And so it's so fresh in my mind. I, I, that's why I chose it. So great guesses. Actually, the largest network of ferries in the world is the Istanbul Ferry Network. And they've got about 87 vessels in and around uh, the Bosphorus. Um, connecting the east side with the west side, um, and that's the biggest one. And the reason why I mentioned this in relation to Washington is that Washington, Washington State ferries, they tout themselves in their brochures as having the second largest ferry system in the world, where I was like, you know, very proud being a new Washingtonian. Um, and then I realized that the metric that they were using to measure what the second largest ferry system in the world meant by was the number of cars that the ferry could hold and move around between ports. And then I got very upset because I did not like that metric. That is such um, an American so I, metric. <laughs> totally. I know. I was like, oh my God, is that really the metric we're using for biggest ferry system? And then I looked up um, what was the second largest ferry system in the world based on number of vessels, which... I would assume would be a good proxy for people ridership. And it's actually um, BC ferries in British Columbia. So like when you're on the ferry, are you going to tap the person on the shoulder next to you and be like, so you think this is a cool ferry system? You should go to Istanbul. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I will be that person on your ferry. Catherine, what's your free electron? Yeah, so this week, a report is being released by Local Solar for All that includes Vote Solar and the Coalition for Community Solar Access. And they asked the modeling company Vibrant Clean Energy to model the least cost plan to achieve Biden's goal of 80% clean electricity by 2030. And what they found was that would require 103 gigawatts of distributed solar. That includes residential, commercial, and community solar. And that's about two to four times faster than developed in the previous decade. Right now, it would require 65 gigawatts of new distributed solar. It also said 137 gigawatts of distributed storage. Then it would be leveraged with 579 gigawatts of utility-scale solar and 442 gigawatts of wind. And they found that if they did that, that by 2030, you would save $109.6 billion over just doing utility scale. So by having the DER side, the distributed side brought in, you would save money. You could create 1.2 million jobs by 2030. And if you carved 50% out of that for low and middle income communities that would serve 8 to 15 million LMI residents. So it's pretty amazing um, modeling results. And I thought that was really interesting. You can find it on localsolarforall.org. And it really will help those of us who are trying to, in states, improve the IRP process and always say, you have to do the modeling better. You have to like co-optimize and make sure that you're looking at not just the utility scale, but also the distributed customer side. So we think this will be really a helpful tool and really kind of show a pathway that is that really says that the distributed side is just as important as the utility side. Well, that is super important for solving problems in the electricity sector. But what about agriculture? I've got something that I found 
It's called the Mulu. You ever heard of the Mulu? No, but it sounds like a party. (laughs) Well, it is a system to capture cow urine. And you see, cow urine can actually be a pretty significant problem when it comes to greenhouse gases because urine contains a lot of nitrogen. And when those cows pee all over the fields and it mixes with feces, it becomes ammonia and uh, and then it taints water with nitrates and it creates nitrous oxide. And nitrous oxide is about 7% of our greenhouse gases. And so that's, and when I say our, I say US greenhouse gases. But Germany researchers said, how do we solve this problem? And they created a toddler training pad to put the cows in this special pen and then trained them to pee in this special place where it would capture the urine. Uh, And then they would give them a a sweet liquidy molasses when the cows peed um, uh, in this area, this designated area. And then they learned how to do it. And so the cows would actually go to the mulu to pee. And um, they they showed that 11 out of 16 cows, it was a very small study, could, could do this. And now they're working on how to train cows at a mass scale. So I thought that was quite delightful. Uh, I also will say that this does not feel like a totally scalable climate solution because, um, you know, burps and flatulence are actually a bigger source of of uh, greenhouse gases, methane. But still, this is a uh, novel way to, to solve the problem of emissions from livestock. <laughs> it's such a great story. And like my four kids would have fallen into the ones that like didn't go for the gummy bears and M&Ms when, uh, when they went. So <laughs> I'm in that group of cows. Steven, if I could offer a follow-up electron to your free electron. Um, so... It just so happens that I was talking to my sister who works at Cargill on their sustainability team. Um, She's actually working on a project to develop cow masks to trap burps from cows, which, you know, a lot of methane. And so these masks that you put on a cow actually reduce methane emissions by more than half. So I guess the industry is looking at it from the front of the cow to the back of the cow. I don't know how scalable it is either, but thought I'd share that as well. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, the the end of this article that I read, it was an NPR article, had me in stitches. They said, the cows can't be trained not to belch or fart, said one researcher, because, quote, <laughs> they would blow up. <laughs> so why don't we Masks just go beyond meat, guys? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Uh, Okay, well, I think that's going to do it for the show. Tiffany, thanks. This was so much fun. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Catherine. Till next time. Catherine, a great pleasure. Thanks again. You too. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot for joining us, everybody. Uh, You can get all of us on Twitter if you want to correspond with us, if you want to react to the stats and trends that we discuss in the show. Hit us all up on Twitter. We will link to our profiles in the show notes. And, of course, um, if you want to suggest any future story ideas, let us know. Uh, with Tiffany Chu and Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Energy Gang, a co-production of Postscript Media and Wood McKenzie. We will catch you next time. <laughs>